Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, dear Lord God, dear, dear Lord God, we thank you that we're here together today. We thank you, Lord God, that, that we can be together to listen to your holy word. Your word which directs our path. How can a young man cleanse his way? By giving heed according to your word. We thank you, Lord God, that you have given to us your word. And that we, Lord God, can read and be edified, encouraged, rebuked, corrected, whatever the work that needs to be done in our hearts is. Your word is a double-edged sword and does it. And we pray, Lord God, that you would give us understanding, faith to believe it, faith which obeys it, doers of it, not hearers only. Lord, the Scripture in front of us today calls us to humility. And my prayer, Lord God, is that we would heed that call. Myself, first of all, and everyone who is truly your child, that we would heed the call to humility and walk properly before you. Strengthen us and teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me go ahead and I know we covered the first section of this last week, but it's a short chapter. So let me just go ahead and read us through the entire thing again. Here it is, starting in verse 1, James chapter 4. Ready? Here we go. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself, makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and He will flee from you. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren, he who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas... You do not know what will happen tomorrow. 
For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. The passage is a fairly simple one then. And we went through the first part of it in the beginning that had to do with like wars and fights. Really the really what the the collateral damage is of living for your own pleasure. We don't we, we, we think that we just mind our own business, but, but when we go through life and and in view here is life in a church as a Christian, when we go through that and we're driven, ambitiously driven by self-motivation and self-desire and act towards brothers and sisters in the church, that way, the, the collateral damage of that is what? Wars, fights, quarrels, division. Whose fingerprints are all over that? Come on, whose fingerprints are all over that? Who's the divider of the brethren? Who's the great sower of discord? Who's the father of lies? That's why this passage goes on to say what? Resist him. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But it actually goes on to say, you don't really have what you want for two reasons. One, you don't ask. And two, when you do ask, you ask wrong. Because even your praying is motivated by your selfish thought. It's strong. It's a strong rebuking passage, right? It's not just an angry preacher standing in front and... It's not what it is. It's, it's, a, it's a passage that's meant to do some surgery on our souls, right? So we receive it that way. So he says, adulterers and adulteresses, it's a strong accusation. But you know what adultery is? As wicked and cruel and lawless as it is, adultery is the betrayal of a singular commitment to your partner in marriage, right? Spiritually, adultery is committed when we love this world, this world that God has sentenced as doomed and has promised to destroy. This world that God regards as an enemy. This world that by God's own sovereign allowance is governed by Satan. When we love this world, we're committing a spiritual adultery against the one who redeemed us, who promises the fullest revelation and experience of his blessings in our future, not in our present. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And there's a powerful word here that I don't know if I made enough of last week. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Notice the word makes himself, right? Makes himself an enemy of God. When we run through this life governed by our pleasure, living for our pleasure, loving this world, allowing ourselves to be assimilated into the value system of this world through whatever means, living your life governed by just the headlong, reckless, pursuit of your own ambitions and desires without counting the cost or without any fear or regard towards God, you're doing some, you are positioning yourself. You are positioning yourself as God's 
enemy. That's what that means. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. And then, kind of where we wrapped up last week, do you think that the Scripture says in vain? In other words, do you think that the Bible doesn't really mean it? When the te- and this is not a verbatim quotation of anything in Scripture. It's just a summative statement of what generally the Bible teaches. The general direction of what the Bible teaches about God's Spirit is that He yearns jealously like a husband does for his own wife or a wife does for her own husband or a parent does for her own child or like anybody does for anything that belongs to them. We don't want anyone else to mess with it. We yearn jealously. I just had a great conversation with uh, Josh, Brother Josh actually. We were talking yesterday here. Wonderful conversation talking about the difference between jealousy and envy. A lot of time, remember that? A lot of time in, in, in modern English, when we talk about jealousy, what we mean is envy, right? But actually jealousy used in biblical language is often used in a very positive sense to describe what attribute of God? Holiness, right? His name is jealous, the book of Exodus says. Because he called Israel to serve him and not to walk in the ways of the world. And when God got angry because they worshipped the golden calf, when they uh, went into the land and tolerated pagan practices, allowed pagan gods to be worshipped, he got angry because he is a jealous God, not an envious God. To envy someone means what? I'm, it's like jealousy, but like I have this bitterness this, this covetous, bitter angriness towards them because I want what they have. Why should they have that? I want that. That's envy, right? Jealousy, in its purest, oldest sense, is something different. Jealousy is what is rightfully mine is being perverted by someone else and being taken by someone else. That's actually an ca- attribute of God's holiness. And this word here that says, His Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. And, and as I told you last week, the reference to spirit can be taken two ways. It, it could be taken as a reference to the spirit of man inside us. But I lean towards the capital S in the New King James Version being correct because the spirit is described as a who, independent of the person that it's in. Spirit who, not spirit which dwells in us, but spirit who dwells in us, yearns jealously. So that is God. God, the Holy Spirit in us, yearns jealously. So that's what's happening. The the wars and the fights within us that the beginning of the passage describes. If you're a Christian, it's because the Spirit of God dwells in you. And when you walk through life just loving this world and just without any regard for the cost or the effect or without any regard for what God's will might be or without any regard for holiness or without any regard for your service to Christ, without any regard for your testimony or the testimony of God's church. When you just walk through life loving this world and you have His Spirit in you, there's a war that's going on because His Spirit yearns jealously for you to be fully holy, H-O-L-Y, and holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, devoted to God. And so 
You and your flesh and your carnal desires are pursuing one thing, whereas God's Spirit in you longs for you to be completely devoted to God in everything. And so there's a war. And when you actually act out on it with your mouth or with your actions, it creates wars and fights among people. God says that's committing adultery spiritually. Now, we left off with the but in verse 6 and then the therefore in verse 7. The but in verse 6 takes us back to Proverbs chapter 3. Here's the word of comfort. Here's the word of hope. Here's the word of mercy and grace and blessing for the Christian. Right? After, after being confronted with the rebuke concerning spiritual adultery and loving the world and pursuing your carnal pleasure, then you get but, but what? But he gives more grace. Right? So for the person, and and what the word says is amazing. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, or it's rendered in in Proverbs 3 in the Hebrew slightly differently. He scorns the scornful. That is, he resists the proud, but gives his grace to the humble, right? So the bottom line is, how does that fit with what he's talking about? If you read the words of verses 1 through 5, and your response is pride, your response is to say, look, I'm living my life the best I can. If I'm going to enjoy myself, I'm going to enjoy myself. None of us would say it to God like that. But if that's a reflection of the way your spirit is, you're proud. And God resists that. However, if you read those verses in 1 through 5, and your response is, yes, Lord. Lord, please work in my heart. Show me, Lord God, where I should be changed. Lord God, please forgive me for where I've loved this world and show me if there are elements of my character or my actions that ought to... Listen, His grace is with the humble. His grace will be to lead you and to guide you as you cried out when you sang a little while ago, change my heart, O God. Make it ever true. Make me more like you. Listen, His grace is there for that. For the person who comes to Him with humility. For the Christian. Not the lost person. This is, a, this is a grace for a Christian. A lost person is not saved by changing his life. Right? A lost person is not saved by saying, God, change me. A lost person is saved by repenting and putting his trust in Christ. This is a word for Christians, where Christians are called to examine themselves and see, am I a lover of this world? Am I spiritually unfaithful to God? Because I love this world. Jesus made, listen, Jesus was extreme about this. If you love your life, you're going to lose it. If you hate your life for my sake, you find it. Jesus would say things that would rock people's world. Jesus would say things that would just leave people speechless. Like, if a man doesn't hate his father or mother, he's not worthy of me. 
I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I'm going to come right into a house and I'm going to divide a father and a son, a mother and a daughter, a father-in-law and a son-in-law, etc. and so forth. Because some receive the gospel and some don't. Right? The devotion to Jesus that a Christian is called to is an extremism. It's not an extremism like in other religions will cause people to lash out in anger and violence towards others. It's an extremism. Ready, 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 ready? It's an extremism that causes the Christian to look in the mirror. It's not an extremism that causes me to point at everybody else and say, you love the world too much. You love the world too much. You love the world too much. It's an extremism that causes me to examine no one but myself and humble myself and pray, God, change me. Change my heart. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O God. My mouth, my heart. Not may the words of his mouth and the meditations of her heart be pleasing to you. Please, God, listen to them. Please, no. No, we're not, we're not a bunch of judges, which is where this passage goes, doesn't it? When you get into the next section, that's where it goes. We're not to be evil judges of one another and make ourselves judges of the law. We're to examine ourselves and carefully see where are we before the Lord. Now, you get to verse 7. Ready? So that's the little 15-minute recap of last week. Now you get to verse 7 and you get a therefore. Now, the therefore is very important. I know I've said this many times, but I want to remind you of this. Therefore, in every language is a literary device that is used to draw a conclusion from what was previously said. That's important always. And it's especially important in this passage. We were just told that wars and fights emerge because of the evil desires of our heart. We were just told that loving this world is committing spiritual adultery against God and making ourselves an enemy of God and that His Spirit dwells in us earnestly. But He gives grace to the person who humbles himself. He'll resist the proud, but He gives grace to the person who humbles himself. Now, knowing that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, what ought you to do? Humble yourself. And look what it says. Therefore, submit to God. Submission is an action that emanates from humility. What does that imply? It implies, ready? Here's where we can all just, everyone just look at yourself and think about yourself. If the conclusion is to submit to God, then the implication must be that the person who walks around driven by their own desires, stirring up all sorts of discord and wars and strife, 
The person who loves this world is what? Not submitted to God. Humble yourself. Humble yourself and do. Oh, here we are. We're right back at chapter 1. Be a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. God resists the proud and gives His grace to the humble is not just an amen line. It's a call to action. Right? If you're going to really humble yourself, be a doer of it. Submit yourself to God. Submit yourself to God. God is the Lord. If you're going to submit yourself to God, it starts with a humble spirit. It starts with faith. It starts with full, assured faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Along with that comes a commitment to pray, to pray unceasingly and humbly. There comes a commitment to read and to study and to know and to believe and to obey, obey God's holy word. That's the person who submits to God. There comes with that a commitment to study, to show yourself approved to God. There comes with it a commitment to look at Jesus, as the hymn writer said, look full into His wonderful face. Then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. To look at and study and know Jesus and pray and say, Lord, make me an imitator of Jesus. When's the last time you prayed and said to God, Lord, here I am. Help me to strip away everything that is just me. Lord Jesus, live your life in me and through me. Make me more like you. Lord Jesus, you gave your all for me, and now I am yours. Show me where I'm just holding on for myself and release it all to trusting you. Make me a channel in this life of grace, of mercy, in my actions, with my mouth. Make me someone who, when other people are around, they are compelled to say, like those people in the Bible observed about Christ's disciples, they were with Jesus. When's the last time you prayed like that? Our Father in heaven... Holy is your name. Let your kingdom come. Your kingdom. Let it come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done here as it is there. Give us today our daily bread. You know, content with God's provision. Provide and help me to be content with today because I don't even know if tomorrow is going to happen. Forgive me of my sins as I forgive everyone who sins against me. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Listen to this. Ready? 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 Because it's your kingdom, it's all your power, and it's all your glory. 
everything, God, is yours. The kingdom that I just said, your kingdom come, that's your kingdom. All the power to do anything is in your hands, not mine. And certainly all glory, all glory, all the adulation and praises and exaltations of men, it all belongs to you. Was it not spot on? Wow. Was it not laser pinpointed spot on how Jesus taught us to pray? That's the response to this. God resists the proud, but he gives his grace to the humble. When's the last time you prayed like that? Can I tell you something? You should be praying like that all the time. All of us, we should be praying like that all the time. Submit to God. Look at this. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And this is all hand in hand. This is all part of the therefore. See, God resists the proud and gives his grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God implies that the person who loves this world and walks just in his own ways and allows his own desires even to stir up divisions and strife and wars, that person is not submitted to God. But you're also told to resist the devil. What does that imply? That implies when you love this world and you walk only according to your own desires, and you allow the headlong pursuit of your own ambition to stir up divisions and quarrels and strife, listen, listen, who are you serving? Who are you serving? The devil. So that's why the therefore, that is the conclusion of all of that, is submit to God, resist the devil. Now, let's just talk. It could be a whole sermon, and I'm not going to do that. Famous last words. But resist the devil. There's two things there. There's a command, and there's a promised result. Right? You might say, in a sense, that the devil is the classic bully. Right? He does nothing but cause trouble. But when he's resisted, he runs. He doesn't run right away. And he doesn't stay away for long. But he does flee when he's resisted. That's the sovereign design and will applied of God. It's good to know. You should act on it. If you're going to resist the devil, how are you going to do that? Well, there's the obvious things that I just mentioned. You need to walk closely with God. That's actually the next sentence, isn't it? Draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Right? So, so if you're going to resist the devil, you need to be submitted to God. You need to be drawing near to God all the time. Right? That's why, that's why the whole spiritual adultery thing is so important. Because if you love the world, you can't draw near to God. Because God, listen, I, I don't... It, You might not like me. You actually might not like me for saying this, but I'm going to say it because it's the clear teaching of Scripture. God is going to destroy this world. The world is the enemy of God. 
And when you walk through it day by day, loving it, embracing it, I'm not talking about the people. I'm not talking about care and compassion for people, helping the poor, preaching the gospel to the lost. That's not loving the world in the sense that the, the loving the world here is taking all of my desires and pleasures and just grabbing everything that the world's got. Filling my mind, filling my mind with its entertainments and philosophies and everything else, listening to filth and garbage, looking at filth and garbage, and filling my mind and filling my spirit with corruption. I am making myself God's enemy, and I am serving Satan when I do that. If you're going to resist the devil, you need to be walking closely with God. And you can't walk closely with God if you're also holding hands with his enemy. It's basic, common sense, axiomatic principles of life. You're not God's friend if you love his enemy. Simple as that. So number one, if you're going to resist the Lord, or resist Satan, you have to walk closely with the Lord. Prayer. All the things the early church did, right? Acts chapter 2, the end of the chapter. And the church gave themselves daily to the apostles' doctrine, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. The first church, the first thing that we're told about the first church is every day they gave themselves to the teaching, learning the Word. They gave themselves to the breaking of bread, which I believe to be a reference to the Lord's table, though some believe it to be simply fellowship and breaking bread together, but I don't think that because the word fellowship is immediately used after that, so the redundancy is not logical. So so they gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the breaking of bread, which is the Lord's table, that is remembering the Lord's sacrifice, to fellowship, which means sharing life together, and to prayer. If, that, if those things are not part of your life, if those things are optional, if those things are down low, on the, if those are things that you don't kick, claw, fight, and scratch to make sure you get yourself into, you're not walking closely with God. And you need to look in the mirror. Not point at other people, but look in the mirror. And say, God, forgive me, help me change this. But you know what? The second thing I think that comes with resisting the devil is recognizing him. How do you resist that which you don't recognize? And may I say something to you? The first thing filters into the second. If you're not walking closely with God, you will not recognize the work of the devil. Listen to me. Don't tell me Satan this, Satan that. Because you know when we talk about the works of Satan, we think about maybe someone who's addicted to drugs living on the street. And boy, Satan's really got them. Or we think of someone with all these awful habits in their lives. Or we think of like an atheist, you know, a militant atheist who fights against the existence of God. Whatever, whatever comes up in your head when you think of the devil, right? You know, you think of the really creepy looking character in the Passion of the Christ movie, you know, or something like that. You know the Bible does not teach any such thing about Satan. Here's, here's the enemy that you're called in this passage to resist. He's the most powerful angel that God ever made. That's where he started. And his name was Lucifer. And his permanent place 
his duty assignment, to put it in military terms, his deployment was to be right around the throne of God himself. He rose up in rebellion and he was cast out of heaven. This this creature is so persuasive and powerful that he persuaded, ready, a third of the angels in heaven. Think, think, think. He persuaded a third of the angels in heaven to rise up in rebellion against God. How long did that last? He was cast out. And guess where he came? Here. He is described in his activities here in a few ways. And I'm not going to, just for time's sake, I'm not going to look them all up. But listen carefully to this because if you have an interest in being obedient to God's word and resisting the devil, you need to recognize him. So I'm going to describe him a little bit for you as the Bible does. First of all, he knows the Bible. That's number one. We see him quoting scripture to Jesus when he's tempting him. You know, cast yourself off of the pinnacle of the temple here because the Bible teaches that his angels have charge over you and you will not dash your foot against a stone. He knows like obscure verses in the Bible that you and I don't. He like knows the Old Testament and stuff. Like modern Christians, like, hey, Old Testament. Like Satan like knows it inside out. Right? The Bible tells us that he appears, that as he manifests himself, ready, as an angel of light. An angel is a messenger, a carrier of something. Light in the Bible, in the literature of the Old and New Testaments of the Bible, light is almost always indicative of that which is good. Knowledge, truth, goodness, righteousness. So Satan is not the guy who's trying to get the addict on the street to take drugs again. Satan is the guy who shows up and tries to persuade people with things that sound good to them. That's why you can't be driven around by your own desires. Because if you're a person that's just going to be driven by your love for this world, there is someone very powerful who is very able and very glad to make sure you get exactly what you want. And you make yourself the enemy of God. We are told that Satan is a liar. And he's the father of lies. Right? Where does that phrase come from? The father of lies. Well, not meaning where is it in the Bible, but it emanates all the way from the Garden of Eden, right? When he basically lied to Eve and said, you won't die. It's like the first thing. You know what I'm saying? Yo, God says that if I eat from this tree, we'll die. You won't die. You won't die. The father of lies, Right? That's why I say to you, learn to recognize Satan. Where lying abounds, there Satan is at work because he's the father of it. He gives 
birth to it. He fathers it. The Bible tells us he's a divider and an accuser of the brethren. Right? We know that he accuses believers to God. You see that in the beginning of the book of Job, right? God asks Satan, who... Oh, by the way, that's another attribute right there. I should point it out. Satan apparently has God's ear. Right? Walks right into the throne room of God. There he is. He comes in among the rest of the angels to the throne of God. Book of Job, right in the beginning. And God asks him, have you considered my servant Job? None like him, right? And Satan says, you know, here's the accusations begin. Yeah, he loves you because he's rich and he's prosperous and everything else. You take it away and you watch. He'll curse you. Yeah, he loves you because he's got a really nice family and things are going wrong. You, you, he loves you because he's healthy and everything's going good. For him. You, you, Lord, you allow me to take that away and you watch what he does. You watch how quick he turns on you. That's how Satan works. You ready for this? You might say, Satan prays. You certainly can say, Satan talks to God. Do you? Isn't that funny? We loathe prayer. We don't go to prayer meetings. We don't come together to pray. We don't find it particularly exciting. Our enemy talks to God all the time, apparently. Put some new little spin on that, doesn't it? Yeah? Um... He is a divider of brethren as well. When you see words, when you hear words or see actions or things that are happening among believers, and listen, not not like let's take a bunch of believers out to a bar and get them drunk. No, I'm talking about an angel of light. When you hear of things being said or things that are being done, listen, 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 that are dividing Believers from one another. Who's at work? Who? Who? Who's being served? God? Learn to recognize. There are some military, ex-military people in here who have been trained in enemy identification. Every Christian should be trained in enemy identification. And here's the training manual. Here it is. Read it. Believe it. Obey it. How do you resist? How do you resist him? When you see and hear those things going on, what do you do? You run. You get away from it. You get it out of your life. Perhaps you even rebuke it. What happened when Jesus was with the disciples and Peter, after he asked, who do men say that I am? Blah, 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 blah. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, right? Then Jesus, at that moment, when he recognized that they understood that he was the Messiah, he said the first thing that he started to do was what? Let me tell you what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. And on the third day, I'm going to rise from again. And Peter, the very one who said, 
You're the Christ. Said, no, Lord, that is not going to happen to you. Jesus did not just nod his head. Didn't shake his head. He said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because he recognized who was at work corrupting. Jesus just got done saying what was going to happen to him. And here was a man saying to God, no, that's not going to happen. Who's that? It's just like the, isn't that just like the Garden of Eden? You won't die. Right? So Jesus rebuked it. Listen, you are called to resist the devil. And when you resist the devil, you know what he does? He gets up and he runs away. Now, he won't stay away, right? When Jesus was tempted, you know, turn these stones into bread. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds in the mouth of God. Satan didn't leave. He came back. And he came back a third time. And then throughout Jesus' ministry years, including the anecdote that I just gave you, he continued to appear, right? But he must be resisted. He must be resisted, and he must be resisted by you and I. Here's what the passage does not say. Submit to God and submit to God and then wait on God to resist the devil. Doesn't say that. Tells you to resist. You get sucked into activities that you know are dishonoring to God. You get sucked into things that are lies. You get sucked into things that divide brethren. You get sucked into things that pull people away from the relationship with God. You get sucked into things that attack and assail and whittle away at love and unity among Christians. You get out of it. You rebuke it. And then its author gets up and runs. He'll be back. Because here's another characteristic of Satan, right? And the very same Peter who obviously received that rebuke with humility and became a great servant of God. Peter came to recognize Satan very much, right? And wrote to us and told us that he walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know what? It doesn't say he walks around stealthily. He doesn't walk around secretly. He walks around running his big mouth, right? looking for anyone that he can pick off. Right? That's another characteristic of your enemy. He's a big talker. Right? What did Peter tell you to do? Be sober and be vigilant. Sober means to have a clear mind. Vigilant means to have a clear eye. Walking closely with God, your thoughts given to Him, your eyes wide open, watching for this enemy who with his big fat mouth continues to walk around sowing all sorts of problems and relentlessly never gives up. You resist, he runs away, but he'll be back. What is necessary? What is necessary to be able to resist the devil that he might flee? What does the passage tell us? Number one, humility. You need God's grace. You are not more powerful than Satan. 
This is not just walking around saying, I bind you, Satan. I rebuke you, Satan. That's not what this is. There's a lot of that stuff that goes on. And no, 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 no. It's, it's not that. You're not greater than him. You know, you're actually told in the Bible, in the book of Jude, a very interesting thing. Jude, Jude says that when Michael the archangel, you're not as powerful as Michael the archangel and neither am I. Raise your hand if you think you're as powerful as Michael the archangel. Please keep your hands down because that would make me look really bad. No, but, but, but you're not. When Michael the archangel fought against the devil over the body of Moses, there is no such account in the Old Testament, but the New Testament book of Jude tells us that this happened. I don't know what's behind it. I don't know what God's interest in the flesh and blood mortal remains of a human being would be. I don't know. We're not told. doesn't matter to me. But I know that there was a contention between an archangel, not just an angel, but an archangel, and the devil, a fallen angel. And this, this archangel would not say anything to Satan except the Lord rebuke you. Not I rebuke you, but the Lord rebuke you. Even an archangel was not strong enough to stand up against Satan without drawing upon the authority and the power of God. So what is necessary to resist? And you are called to resist. It is not optional, brothers and sisters. Resisting the devil is not an option. It is a part of life as a Christian. That's why the spiritual armor that Paul tells us about is hold up the shield of faith that you may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of... Somebody knows this. Ephesians chapter 6. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of... Thank you. Right? Not optional. You're in it. You're in it. You've been drafted. And you're in the army now. The army of God. Humble yourself. How do you resist the devil? Recognize who he is and what he does. Humble yourself. Submit yourself to God. Humble yourself before God. Resist the devil. That is, when you see the things he's doing, stay out of it. Rebuke it. This is wrong. We have to stop this. Don't do this. Like Jesus did to Peter. Get behind me, Satan! Rebuke it. And what? Verse 8. Draw near to God, and He'll draw near to you. It's part of your spiritual warfare. You know, part of the spiritual warfare described in Ephesians chapter 6 is praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. That's Ephesians 6.18. It talks about the whole armor of God, the helmet of salvation, and the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and, and the breastplate of righteousness, and the shield of faith, and the sword of the Spirit, right? And all those things. But then it says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Draw near to God. Draw your hearts near to God. Come close to God. Here's what it does not say. I will draw you close and then I will draw myself close to you. Let's think for a minute. 
in the life of a lost person, we are told that no one can come to God unless what? He draws them. There's another reason why I know we're talking to Christians here. In the life of a Christian, we're told something different, aren't we? Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Who's the instigator of that? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to say it. It's right on the page in front of you. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Who's the instigator of that interaction? Christians. Draw near to God is the command. The result is, and He will draw near to you. Right? That's not hard to understand. That's plain language. The instigator of that is you. God has already drawn you near to Him through the preaching of the Gospel. God has already, by His sovereign grace, made you His child. You've already been, though formerly an alien and a stranger, you have been made near by His blood, as Ephesians said. That's already happened. But now the book of James is talking about walking as a Christian. Draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. I've heard it said by preachers before, and it's absolutely true and consistent with this. Every Christian, not every person, but every Christian is exactly as close to God, ready, as they choose to be. And if you don't believe that, take it to God. Take it to God, because I'm just telling you what he said. And it will be good for you to take it to God, because then you'll be drawing near to him, and he'll draw near to you. So there you go. So take it, take, so if you, if you don't agree with me, take it to God and God will prove that what I'm saying is true. There you go. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And you know what you'll be able to do? You'll be able to resist the devil. In fact, you won't be able to not resist the devil. You won't be able to tolerate his actions in your life. Now look, we were told before in this passage, what? That friendship with the world is enmity with God. There is this constant barrage by the world and by Satan to try to hook us into like loving this world and living for our own lusts and pleasures and having all the fights and strife and everything stirred up by it all. Right? That constant lore and attack is always there. And so if we're going to properly draw near to God, what do we need to do? What does he say? Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Look, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Your hands. Well, these are my hands. But what are the hands symbolic of? They're symbolic of what I do. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. In other words, look at your actions and cleanse them. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Interesting link of the heart and the mind there, isn't there? Right? So, so... So James comprehensively looks at the Christian and says, if you're going to draw near to God that He might draw near to you, here's what you need to do first. Cleanse your your hands. Look at what you're doing. If you're doing stuff that, as we made reference to before, serves the interests of Satan and you're sucked in to activities that are detrimental to the works of God in His own church, Cleanse your hands. Wash your hands of it. 
and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What do you think about? What do you listen to? What do you give yourself over to? The outer man and the inner man. All of it. Holy. Holy. Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. Again, these are words to Christians because we are completely, by God's sovereign grace and power, saved, regenerated, made born again, blessed with salvation, sealed with His Holy Spirit, been granted repentance and faith. All of that is God's doing. But then you walk day by day. And as you walk day by day, there are these commands all throughout the Bible that are given to you, including all this spiritual warfare stuff. And you are called to draw near to God. But if you're going to draw near to God, you don't draw near to God while you're holding Satan's hand. Wake up. You don't draw near to God while you're holding Satan's hand. Cleanse your hands. You don't draw near to God while you are embracing spiritual wickedness. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded means I think in my mind that I can worship and honor God and at the same time live for my carnal pleasures and love this world. That's a double mind. A double mind. I have a mind towards God. I have a mind towards myself. Purify your mind. Purify means get rid of the influence of one in favor of the other. That's what purity is. Purity is a single substance, a single state without the effect of anything else, any impurity in it. It's a call to single-mindedness versus double-mindedness. What's this stuff in verse 9? Lament and mourn and weep. Listen, don't be put off by this verse. God is not speaking and describing here the Christian life. We're not called to a life of lamentation and mourning and weeping. We're not called to a life of mourning and gloom. That's not the idea. We're actually called, as Philippians says, what? Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the... We're called to joy in God. But the reason that he's saying here, lament and mourn and weep, is because if you go all the way back to the beginning of the passage, he's addressing people who are causing all sorts of strife and division because of their own ambition, because of acting out of their selfish desires and ambitions. And he's saying, you need to take that and be repentant and mournful and humble before God before it. It's an expression of humility over the fact that I have not lived right before God. It goes back to verse 6, but He gives more grace. You humble yourself like that, and God interjects Himself into your day-by-day existence with His grace. Yes. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. The contrast in those two statements is what? The first half talks about yourself, The second half talks about He. The first half talks about what you do. The second half talks about what He does. Humble yourself in God's sight. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to gloom and all this stuff, right? Humble yourself before God and He will lift you up as opposed to lifting yourself up, which is what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. Right? If you're going to resist the devil, humility is required. 
The last two paragraphs here, just, just sail through them, because there's two examples given of ways that pride manifests itself among the lives of Christians. One is unrighteously judging one another. And two, listen carefully, is putting off doing good and serving God for the sake of your own love of this world. Right? Number one, verse 11, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. And we kind of went over this a little bit last week. I got ahead of myself, but don't speak evil of one another, brethren. Who is being served when we speak evil of one another? Let me ask it not rhetorically, but let me actually have you respond. Ready? Who is served when we speak evil of one another? Very good. Ah, add that to your list of recognizing your enemy. Right? Don't speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges a brother speaks evil of the law. But if you judge the law... You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge one another? In other words, it's a paragraph that basically says this. When you are speaking evil of your brethren, you are judging them. Simple as that. You're judging them according to whatever you understand to be the law. Whether you're right or not is irrelevant. You are judging them. You have some understanding of the way things ought to be and you are judging your brethren when you speak evil against them. That There's no way around that. That's true. That's what James is getting at. And when you're doing that, you're using the law in a way that God did not intend for it to be used. Don't have time to turn there, but what does Galatians chapter 3 say about God's law? It says something extremely eye-opening and important. Oh, we have time. Turn there. Galatians chapter 3. I want you to see this. Come on now, turn there and look at it. This is part of drawing near to God, is getting into His Word together, which is why we're here. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. What, Galatians 3.19, what purpose then does the law serve? Now, the reason that Paul is asking that question is because the issue in Galatians is different from the issue in James. But the answer they come to is the same. The issue in the book of James is that people are using what they understand to be the law to judge one another. The issue in Galatians is that people are using the law to tell people whether they're saved or not. But in either case, what's the same is the law is being misused and the law is being misused because the people that are using it don't understand what it is. Do you follow that? Do you get that? Do you follow that? This is very important. So what purpose does the law serve? Look at this. It was added because of transgressions. Added to what? Added to life. You understand that the law was not given in the Garden of Eden. The law was not given to Noah. The law was not given to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph. The law was not given to any of the Israelites in Egypt for 400 years. The law was given to Moses and to the children of Israel and thereby to the world. Okay? So the law was added to an already sinful world. Why? It says, because of transgressions till the seed should come 
to whom the promise was made. No time to break that all down, but that's a reference to Jesus. In other words, the purpose of the law, listen, the law in its written codified form did not exist in the beginning. It was added in centuries after man was already on the earth to hold us in place until the real hope of redemption came. You can't save yourself through the law. The purpose of the law is to show men that they are sinners so that they see that their only hope of redemption is through the seed. That's Jesus. That's the seed that was promised to Abraham. In Him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a reference to Jesus. Still in Galatians chapter 3, look at verse 24. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. That's the purpose of the law. To the Galatians, you would say, the purpose of the law is not to show people how they can be saved. The purpose of the law is to show people that they can't be saved through their own works, but only through faith in Christ. To James's audience, he would say, the purpose of the law is not so you can judge each other. The purpose of the law is not so you can speak evil of one another and feel justified doing it. The purpose of the law is, like Paul says, to show sinners themselves that they are lost and they need Christ. The law is not my vehicle to say, uh, 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 uh. The law is my vehicle. Look, the law is my vehicle to hold up the mirror and say, I am helpless without mercy. And then I find that mercy in Christ. That's the purpose of the law. And James says, James says, you make yourself a judge when you speak evil of one another. What is that? It is pride. And God resists the proud and gives His grace to the humble. Humble yourself and recognize what the law is. The law is your tutor to teach you that you need Christ. And once you have Christ, there's nothing else the law really can do except remind you again and again and again that you need Christ. It's not your vehicle to judge everybody else. Now, should you share the law with people? Yes. But not to judge them, but to show them that God's Word shows them that they need Christ. That's all. That's all. When we speak evil of one another, we're not resisting the devil, we're serving him. So don't do it. Look at the rhetorical question at the end of the passage. Who are you to judge another? If you have an answer to that, who are you to judge one another? Please don't come share it with me. Get on your knees, close your eyes, bow your head, and pray to God and make your case to Him. Because I'm inclined to believe that the answer to that rhetorical question is, I am nobody to judge anybody else. And so, I humble myself. I draw near to God. I resist the devil. And I don't speak evil of my brethren. Verse 13. Come now. Now here's a passage that's often misunderstood. The purpose of this passage is not just to give Christians another cliche. Lord willing. No. The purpose of this passage is to show that it is pride 
for us to put off serving God and doing good for the sake of our carnal interests. Read it. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Is there anything innately wrong with any of that? There's nothing wrong with moving. There's nothing wrong with spending time somewhere else. There's nothing wrong with functioning in business and making money and doing it legally and without, like, you know, uh, carnality and greed. There's nothing innately wrong with any of that. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. I know this illustration is probably not only irrelevant but potentially offensive on a 99-degree day, right? But trust me, when it gets colder outside, you'll go outside and go, and you'll see it, and then it'll disappear. Don't try that today. That won't happen. Go sit in front of your air conditioner or sit in your pool and drink something cold and relax, all right? It's going to be hot today. So... um, Come now, you who say all this. Look, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow because your life is like that vapor that comes out and just disappears. Instead, what you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. He's not innately attacking the practice of moving and starting a business. Here's what he's doing. Notice verse 17. Therefore. What does therefore mean? Therefore means what he's about to say is the conclusion that he drew from what he just said before, right? Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. In pride, people, listen, 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 people, people in churches, people sitting in churches just like us, people just in their own life, Christians. Christians will be given the opportunity to do good and to serve God. And they will say, I'm not going to be involved because I'm planning to go away for a year and buy and sell. That's what he's talking about. Is when Christians put off serving God today because of stuff they think may happen a year from now. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. And you're going to say no to serving God today? All such Boasting is evil. That's what the passage means. It's not just so we can make sure we say Lord willing whenever we say something about tomorrow or next week or after that. Though we should say that. We absolutely should say God willing and it should come from a sincere heart. Right? But really what he's talking about is when Christians will say, I'm not going to do good. I'm not going to serve God. I'm not going to be involved with the work of the gospel, which we're all called to here together. I'm not going to be involved because I'm doing this tomorrow, I'm doing this next week, I'm doing this next month, and I'm doing this next year. God has not called you to a life where you just plan out things based on your own interests without any regard for the fact that He in the church has given you spiritual gifts that He expects you to use for the growth of the body and for the work of the ministry. His grace to you is that He saved you. His grace to you is that He's given you abilities and gifts that the body of Christ desperately needs. 
And that's another way that pride corrupts. Because we say, nope, not doing that, doing this. That's what he's talking about. And so these two paragraphs, starting in verse 11 and start, hey, listen, this is just straight up old-fashioned Bible exposition here. This is just opening the book, reading what it says, explaining what it says. I can't apply it to your life. You've got to look in the mirror. I'm not your judge. You've got to look in the mirror. These paragraphs are talking about speaking evil of one another and judging one another. That's pride. Putting off doing good for the sake of your own interest. That's pride. It's immaterial to me whether you like that or not. It's immaterial to God whether I like that or not. God has saved us by His grace. And this is what He calls us to. The whole passage hinges on that quotation from Proverbs. He resists the proud, but gives His grace to the humble. When you hear this, do you respond with, No! Or do you respond with, Lord, please show me. Lord, I just don't know, I don't understand everything about how I'm living, but Lord, please show me areas of my life that need to be given to you. But he gives more grace. That, maybe that's the single most important statement in this whole passage. But he gives more grace. More grace! Grace beyond that which I've been saved by? You betcha. More grace. Grace to live. Grace to serve. Grace to glorify God. Can we listen to God's Word today as Christians and pray to Him to help us be strong, to be doers of it, and not hearers only, to walk in true humility, to walk in His grace, that we might serve His interests And even though I don't know if I'm going to walk the veil with him or meet him in the air, I'm going to walk with him the way that he wants me to walk because I know that he's able to keep everything that I've committed to him until that day. Ken and Fanny, come and lead us in our last hymn and then we'll be done for today.